Welcome to Then and Now, brought to you by the UCLA Luskin Center for History and Policy. We are dedicated to studying change in order to make change, linking knowledge of the past to the quest for a better future. Every week, we interview thought leaders, historians, researchers, and policymakers about what happened then and what that means for us now. Welcome to Then and Now, a podcast sponsored by the Luskin Center for History and Policy at UCLA. My name is Kevin Kim. I'm an assistant professor of history at UCLA and an advisory board member at the Luskin Center. The goal of the center is to bring the past into conversation with the present, and by doing so, better understand the past and make a better future. Our guest this week is Thomas Allen Schwartz, Distinguished Professor of History, Political Science, Science, and European Studies at Vanderbilt University. Professor Schwartz is a leading expert in international relations and U.S. foreign policy. He has taught at Vanderbilt and Harvard, where he earned his Ph.D. for over 30 years. He's won awards, honors, and fellowships, too many to name, but including recognition from the Norwegian Nobel Institute, German Historical Society, and the Woodrow Wilson International Center in Washington, D.C. Besides his academic work, Schwartz is past president of the leading scholarly association for U.S. global history, the Society for Historians of American Foreign Relations. And given our podcast's policy focus, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention Professor Schwartz also has some Beltway experience, one might even say some Beltway bruises, which makes it more genuine, by serving as a historical advisor to the U.S. Department of State. Welcome, Tom. Well, thank you so much, Kevin, for uh, uh, inviting me to this podcast. Absolutely. Our pleasure. We are here mostly to talk about your new book, Henry Kissinger and American Power, a political biography. That's the title published by Helen Wang just last year. And it's a great read, I just want to say, and I highly, highly recommend it to listeners interested in one of the most important figures in U.S. foreign policy, you know, in our in our time. In keeping with our podcast's theme of then and now, though, I thought we'd start by discussing Kissinger in the back then, right, in the history of the Cold War, where he was really active and prominent, before we get into the now, how we think about Kissinger today. So first, I have to ask, what inspired you to write a book about Kissinger in the first place? And I ask as someone who you, I imagine you've thought as part of your audience, at least one segment of it, you know, I'm a late Cold War kid born in the late 70s, grew up knowing very little about Kissinger other than his infamy uh, before becoming a historian at UCLA and other places. And my earliest impressions came from him, his depiction memorable by Peter Sellers and Dr. Strangelove, where Kissinger was depicted, at least there, as this twitching, paranoid nuclear madman, I'm sure you and many of your audience members know of. And also more recently, uh, through, his, through the book by Christopher Hitchens, The Trials of Henry Kissinger, which adds human rights violations and, and a moral US diplomacy to the mix, you know, to this popular picture of Kissinger um, as this, you know, not too flattering figure. So in light of all that, you know, what, what drew you to historian nonetheless, you know, in today's contemporary moment, despite all the baggage? Well, uh... The, the simple answer, and this may sound a little crude, is that um, I had written a, an article um, and an editor, Louis Mazur, 
mentioned to me that Hill and Wang was developing a series of biographies as a way of teaching American history, that, that a biography of a critical figure in a field of American history. And he encouraged me to, uh, to do a prospectus. So I did ask around on my advisor, uh, Professor Ernest May from Harvard. I asked a number of my colleagues at Vanderbilt. Uh, but I always kept coming back to the idea that if I wanted to talk about the history of American foreign policy in the 20th century, who better to uh, associate that with than the biography of Henry Kissinger? Now, that in, in, a, in a way that came from my own sense that Kissinger's biography of a refugee from Nazi Germany, a Jewish refugee from Nazi Germany who had been at Harvard, who had been involved in the major scholarly debates on foreign policy, then had the position of power for some eight years and is considered still one of the most effective secretaries of state, whatever one thinks of, of the nature of his policies, that he could be someone with whom, whose biography could allow me to actually say something about the nature of American foreign policy in the 20th century. So it came about in part from a, the possibility of doing this in a, in a book series. I must confess though, and here um, it's a little bit personal in that I grew up with Henry Kissinger. I was in college when he was active. Um, Kissinger was the most admired man in the United States in Gallup polls from 1973 to 75. Um, he was a towering figure during the period of time that I was very impress impressionable. And I, I did think to, to want to know more about him. I, of course, knew the negative aspects. Uh, there's a longer story about that Dr. Strangelove uh, um, issue because that's not exactly Kissinger, although one of the reasons the Nixon administration did not allow him to do on-air briefings until 1972 was the association with the Dr. Strangelove character. Um, but I, I was fascinated by this figure who had come and risen to such prominence in American society and had been involved in such critical issues. So I guess that was part of it. Uh, uh, historians, uh, in some ways, Kissinger was kind of the Mount Everest you know, you wanted to climb it. It was the, he was the big figure in American diplomatic history. We argued about and disputed, and and that was kind of the central reason I plunged into this. Uh, but it was a much tougher task than I thought. So, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. as one could imagine, for someone who has such who span whose career spans so many things, as you show in your book, from refugee to Harvard academic to to many things past. Um, but one thing that really struck me when I when I read your book. Um, was that what you seem to really do there better than most, and which I really love about most good history, is that you show him as full of contrasts and, and contradictions, right? He's not, he's not an easy person to categorize or pin down. And among other things, you note his charisma, you know, something which was really surprising to me later, um, learning about his way with the ladies, you know, supposedly. Um, and, but also you, you do, you do are, are fair and you talk about his arrogance and his pettiness, um, the fact that he really did portray being omnipotent, but also was very flawed and limited at times in his knowledge of the world, especially. And philosophically, too, you show, you know, I think it's easy. We often say he's very he seems a very pessimistic person at his core. But as you point out, he also is a very opportunistic and, 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 ambi and ambitious figure. And it gets to the point where it's hard to know where his personal ambitions and America's ambitions, where, where one starts and the other ends. The two are so entangled and your book, I think, really, really gets at that. So all that to kind of say, you know, by the time I finished the book, it, it almost seemed sometimes harder to get my arms around Kissinger than I did at the beginning. But I wonder if that's just my impression. Do you, did you, do you ultimately just see him as this bundle of contradictions 
uh, debating it sort of every day or, or do you actually lean the end towards one way or another? Uh, it's a very good question. I use um, uh, Hans Morgenthau, who's the sort of leading uh, realist thinker on American foreign policy, um, also a German uh, exile uh, from that era, called Kissinger uh, at the height of his power a polytropos. He used a, a Greek term to get of a many-sided figure, someone who could, in particular, Morgenthau was interested in how Kissinger had been able to negotiate between the Arabs and Israelis, convincing both in some ways that he was on their side. Um, and that it does imply contradictions, but I, I guess I, as, as much, I, I suppose one of the things I was trying to get at was that the idea that there was this central intellectual consistency in Kissinger, this realpolitik idea of foreign policy that he always practiced and that he consistently brought into government was wrong, that, that in many ways he was quite opportunistic, he was quite political. I was trying to get at the degree to which he understood that American foreign policy, effective American foreign policy was linked strongly to American domestic politics, something he learned and absorbed from Richard Nixon and tried to help Gerald Ford with as well when he was a secretary of state. And that implied both certain contradictions, but it also implied a, a sort of a willingness to change policies as conditions adapted and political situations changed. And so I wanted to bring that out as much and in a way show how Kissinger um, was mostly concerned with the issue of American power. Now, you were quite right to say that where the personal ends and his, his sense of American national interest or power begins is sometimes difficult to uh, disentangle. He, he always felt that things went better when he was personally in charge. But that didn't mean that I didn't think he had a, a, a sort of sense of the role that the United States should play in the world, a role that he thought was quite significant, that it did mean a, a type of imperium, a type of uh, a powerful role in keeping the peace or providing for what he called international equilibrium or a legitimate in international world order, which was the title of his last book was World Order, um, I think is also there, that Kissinger also did seek that. So I, I guess I, I, I don't feel like I'm debating every day about him. I'm actually still fascinated by the fact that he, uh, at age 98, is working on two books. I find it hard to work on one book at a, uh, much younger, and yet he's working on two books. So he does fascinate me a little bit in his energy and, and uh, still his intellectual firepower at such a at, 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 uh, for such a long period of time, but also recognize the flaws, inconsistencies, personal quirks, and the rest within the man. Um, history is messy. The people who make history is often are often very messy. And uh, I think that's something I, I tried to convey about Henry Kissinger. I think I think you succeed in it. Uh, the, one of the you touched on a couple of things there, which I hope to get into a little bit as we talk about the then and now, um, both the, 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 the domestic politics bit, but then maybe first the, the real politique. And, um, you know, it's, it's one of the arguments that, that resonated with me. And it's, it's a bit contrary because usually, as we've been talking, Kissinger, usually when you th we think of him, we, we think of omnipotence, we think about the usual trope is global domination. Yet you make this point that when you think about the Nixon doctrine, when you think about the overall pattern of what he was doing, it really the word is the, the key word is retrenchment. And, and really the Nixon and Kissinger's recognition meaning by that term of the limits of U.S. power. I was wondering if you could elaborate on that for, for listeners, of course, sort of grappling between someone who was reaching for the stars yet at the same time felt limited. Yes. Yeah. No, I, 
I think one of the fascinating things is the contrast between uh, the inaugural address of President Kennedy in 1961, where he boldly stated, we will do all this in defense of liberty, we'll pay any price, bear any burden, and the situation Richard Nixon finds himself in 1969, a country that had been consumed with uh, domestic problems, issues, so the whole uh, urban uh, uh, insurrections of the late 1960s, the civil rights struggle, poverty, um, uh, a, a loss of confidence, and then an unsuccessful war in Southeast Asia. In, in a sense, Nixon knew that the United States could not continue the type of, of uh, active foreign policy that he had been part of. And I think Kissinger also recognized this, that the United States was no longer as preeminent. Europe and Japan had rebuilt. Um, the U.S. no longer could call all the shots in the world. And that, in part, um, some of the diplomatic activity of the Nixon years obscured the fact that one of the central themes was indeed this retrenchment, this, this pulling back of America's role and in effect, also in the Nixon doctrine, relying far more on surrogates. Now, sometimes that didn't work out terribly well. Uh, one could make the case that uh, the United States relied heavily on Iran or began to rely heavily on Iran in the Persian Gulf as the British retrenched there and, and got back. And that, that would later uh, cause a tremendous disaster in American foreign policy. Um, on the other hand, uh, in a way, this was the period of time in which Israel assumed a much greater significance as a surrogate of American foreign policy and power in the Middle East. Um, in effect, Kissinger and Nixon did have to preside over a period in which the reliance on allies and other client states um, to carry out American uh, objectives became greater as the American people themselves wanted to cut back defense spending, wanted a peace dividend from Vietnam, wanted to address um, economic and social problems at home. And I think that is part of the story. Kissinger's um, diplomatic role in a way obscured some of that because he was so active and so uh, 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 prominent. But the, uh, in a way, the Nixon-Kissinger period was the first example of a sort of retrenchment of American power that would be, uh, we would also see in more recent years. We could talk about that maybe in the now section of the interview, but that in a way there was a parallel. And I think probably my own approach to Nixon and Kissinger was partly influenced by recognizing that retrenchment in more recent times. Now, we could talk about that as well. Um, of course, it's 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 op it's more uh, part of the discourse today than I would have ever imagined myself. Uh, but it's so so the book reflects that so on. But I think you you still try to, you know, recognize that he does. Of course, you do have to cover some some episodes which some see as, you know, maybe global adventurism, say, you know, the bombing of Cambodia or, or even more recently, um, his his support, even though he's not in power anymore, but he does play a sort sort of a revealing supporting role in in the two, in the two thousands as a supporter of George W. Bush's policy in Iraq. Of course, I use the word su supporter advisedly. I mean, it could mean a lot of things. But I guess for people who who are kind of wrestling with that and are kind of take that away alongside the you've debunked the Doctor Strangelove thing cartoon, but I'm afraid that he's still done these things. But you, what would you say to people who, who would bring up those sort of episodes um, and, and say that that's retrenchment? Well, let me, let me uh, uh, distinguish a couple. The bombing of Cambodia certainly is part of uh, an effort to find a way out of Vietnam. Um, it did expand the battlefield. 
but essentially that was about um, the, de the design of at least trying to uh, create a circumstance where the withdrawal of the United States might go ahead uh, without the complete collapse of South Vietnam. That failed. Uh, the bombing of Cambodia, which uh, was a bombing of North Vietnamese troops in Cambodia. It was not a bombing of Cambodians per se. It was a bombing of North Vietnamese base camps in Cambodia. Um, and yes, Cambodians were killed in that, but, but the primary targets were the North Vietnamese who had come to occupy Eastern Cambodia as a part of their uh, uh, military strategy against Vietnam. So in a part, it, it was a little bit like the, the, the famous, the gunslinger leaving the saloon, uh, walking out backwards and firing his guns as he's going out backwards. In a way, it was a way to get out. Um, and what Nixon, Nixon's, the whole pattern of Nixon's Vietnam policy was getting out of Southeast Asia, uh, even though I think people at the time often interpreted things like Cambodia as escalating the war. Um, I think if you look in retrospect, it was a pulling back and a use of other types of force, namely air power, instead of, of, of ground forces um, to try and cover that withdrawal. In more recent times, what you bring up about his role with George W. Bush, I see that very differently. Uh, Kissinger's role as an advisor um, is not a retrenchment role. Kissinger's role as an advisor was basically trying to make himself needed and necessary to American political leaders so as to have a voice at the table. So when American leaders were interested in a more adventurous policy, Kissinger did encourage George W. Bush in the invasion. Now, from what we know, and we don't have the full documentation, from what we know, Kissinger's advice was more limited. He did not see a type of nation-building role for the United States in either Afghanistan or Iraq. Um, he was more um, concerned simply about the weapons of mass destruction, even if that was ultimately proven to be incorrect. And in, in a way, um, he did try to bring some of his Vietnam experience into the discussion with Bush, who he at some point did advise that the only way to defeat an insurgency uh, was to, to, to follow a, a type of de Gaulle strategy of, 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 of defeating the insurgency and then getting out, um, declaring victory in effect. Um, but I do see that as very different. I, I, I don't see Kissinger as intellectually consistent in the type of advice he offered American leaders. So I, I, I in that sense, um, he, he could at times be um, offering much more assertive advice in very different contexts when he wasn't in power versus the time that he was actually in power, which was, I think, framed by uh, the limits of, of, of the American people's willingness to engage in an active foreign policy in the late 1960s and early 70s. So that would be my, that would be kind of my answer. I see. No, I, I think your book does a really good job at showing Kissinger and his ability to, to, to know how to play to the audience, you know, in, in a way that's really remarkable. I think anyone can learn whether you agree with his ultimate decisions or recommendations or not. Um, he certainly knew there's just something to be said for someone who could talk to liberals and conservatives um, and get on Time Magazine's uh, cover um, as most charming man of the year while also being so reviled um, by certain segments of the population. So, so I think that it goes back to why he's such an outsized figure, which you wanted to, to study. Um, about the domestic politics, you know, I think this is also partly why it's, we, we have to kind of untangle all these 
these conceptions about Kissinger. You, you, that, you have a really strong message there. Maybe this is kind of kind of segue into our now part of the conversation. But you know, usually people when they talk about domestic politics and foreign policy see it as a trade-off. It's always one or the other, right? It's always, you know, domestic politics, which is being used, you know, um, or it's foreign policy using d- domestic politics. They, they seem to always be confrontational. But you seem to have this other subtler message where it's really, uh, uh, the two are really on a spectrum almost. And, and we have to try to understand how they work in ways that that, that, that are more complex than that. And, and I was wondering if, if, if you could speak to why, that, why you see that as such an important thing um, both for Kissinger to understand the history and also when we think about today's environment. Yes, I, I, I think um, uh, there, was a, there was a great piece in the Financial Times um, uh, this past week about why we can't have a similar Cold War with China, which makes, a similar, which makes a point of the changing domestic character of the United States is important to understand why containment would no longer be as effective a policy. And I, I guess... Uh, this this goes back to the original intention of the book, namely to try and say something about American foreign policy, that uh, about the history of American foreign policy through the biography of Henry Kissinger. And Henry Kissinger always portrayed himself as somewhat removed from domestic politics. I, I found a, a quotation of his in the Vanderbilt Television News Archive where he was asked whether a peace settlement in Vietnam would help President Nixon domestically. And he replied, oh, the president never talks to me about domestic politics, which, which was nonsense given what we know in the tapes. We know that they did discuss politics. They understood that foreign policy gets perceived at a certain political angle and that Nixon, one of the things Nixon wanted to do was to portray his foreign policy successes as those of a statesman, not as a craven domestic politician who was trying to get votes. He wanted to be perceived in this sort of larger light. And he knew that that would be important for his reelection. And so that he did sort of create a narrative in 1972 of the man who went to China, the man who went to the Soviet Union, the man who brought peace in Vietnam, that was, as I argue in the book, uh, I think quite critical to his reelection by a landslide in 1972. And I think uh, Kissinger recognized that and recognized the significance of that even in uh, negotiations when he would deal with the Chinese and sort of insist or tell them that one of the things President Nixon most wanted them to do is not invite other Americans uh, before he came <laughs> to Beijing in order to give the uh, powerful element of his trip uh, there for American domestic politics. So, yes, I, I do think what I'm suggesting is that all along, America's foreign policy does take into account domestic political considerations, domestic political lobbies, domestic political interests and issues, and that it it then works also to try and use foreign policy success as an argument for domestic political uh, votes for votes uh, at home so it's it's an interactive and and it doesn't it's not always the central issue but oftentimes it it it, it is there we know this in part because we have an extraordinary resource for the nixon years namely the tapes and what we know from the tapes is that oftentimes um, people discuss these things but then they don't put that down on paper because there is this sort of uh, taboo against uh, arguing or putting down domestic political reasons as central for any foreign policy decision. So we we know that, and it's something that oftentimes we speculate on, even as we're speculating, for example, today about Biden's foreign policy abroad and what its connection is. 
Uh, you're not going to hear him argue about it in domestic terms, although his administration has made some concessions to that by talking about a foreign policy for the American middle class, which is interesting and, uh, and maybe it indicates a shift in this direction. Uh, but I do think I do think um, what I was trying to do through this was to show and to evince that 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 fact. So, yeah, I, I mean, I think in one of the first books I read about about U.S.-China relations in the Clinton years, you know, what is remarkable there too in support of what you're saying, it's also foreigners, Chinese, the Chinese government in this case, People's Republic of China, was a close student of U.S. elections and domestic politics, right? Global actors are very aware. If you're in year one of your presidency is one thing. If you're in two and three, okay. But by the time you're in year four, your, your, your power, everyone knows what that means and, and they're looking at the exits for you. So, so um, I, I certainly um, do do see what you're saying there. I feel like we've just scratched the surface, really, of of the vent of Kissinger. But I think we've I think covered enough, and those interested could really um, look at your book, which is you know a mere four hundred you know twenty pages or so um, to get to get to get more of this and, and really dive into the issues we've been discussing. And towards the end of your book, you know, when we talk, when we talk about the now, I couldn't help but sort of look at Kissinger as maybe you did too, at some of the little nuggets of insight that he had for us as we sort of uh, deal with the legacies of a lot of a lot of the international history he was a part of. And one one thing you have, well, this was he was still in power at this time, but I found you know interesting um, because it resonates with today. He tells an interviewer in the early seventies, you know, mind you, this is at the time of Watergate. It's rocking the Nixon administration at home, um, and also. We have the energy crisis in the Middle East, which is rocking, you know, not just the United States, but but uh, especially advanced industrial nations around the world, from Japan to Western Europe. And and he tell, Kissinger tells this interviewer um, that it seems that Western democracies are really at this crisis tipping point. And it's a big question, and but it seems like we're at another one of these tipping points today. And so, what this big question being, what lessons do you see from this Kissingerian history um, of U.S. global power? Um, what 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 do they bring to bear today as we are at sort of another different, maybe different, but in some ways similar um, um, crisis? That's uh, very it's very interesting because certainly Kissinger, in, in a way it's kind of um, heartening because those crises were quite intense. Um, you know, the oil crisis was a huge uh, issue, 400% increase in the price of oil. Nowadays, we're talking of course, getting rid of oil, getting rid of carbon, but then the whole Western economy sat on that. And that, and that, that had such potential uh, to undermine the West and the whole social contract of the West, the, the type of industrial uh, age, the, the degree to which social welfare states were based, uh, it, it could have had disastrous effects. Um, I think to a certain extent, and you know, obviously this is a, there, there are complications of this, but I think to a certain extent, there was a certain leadership largely cooperative leadership uh, during this period between the United States and the major Western powers to try to develop certain shared policies in dealing with energy questions so as not to get into a situation where um, they undermined each other. Um, now, this did have some messy elements to it. The United States pushed around France and to a certain extent used its power with European countries, but in a way it did lead and uh, in a way, I think to a certain extent, if there is a lesson there, it does talk about the need of cooperation among democratic states, that the, 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 the idea that any of them can deal with things alone 
is foolish and that um, in this being, I think, one of the central points that Biden, President Biden is interested in is namely a renewal of alliance relationships. It is not going to be easy. Allies often have frequently very different uh, sets of interests, but that core notion that they are resting on a democratic sense of the accountability of transparency, these sorts of things, which do distinguish them from authoritarian states, that should be still a unifying element and should uh, hopefully bring about common policies towards some of the challenges that democratic states face. So I, I do see that um, in a way Kissinger pointed to the opportunity or uh, the, the Kissinger lessons would point to the opportunities that do come when democratic states cooperate, at least try to cooperate. Speaking to that, could, could, could a, a new contemporary Kissinger or would-be Kissinger do, do play a role in that? You know, you know, when you think about how much shuttle diplomacy did, how much he personalized the diplomatic process, trying to go between three or four major powers at once dealing with these issues in the democratic way you're talking about, but often in a way that was actually, you know, not as transparent as one might assume or think. It, do you think that those kinds of methods would be helpful today or even possible when you think about, you know, Twitter or when you just think about the very different kind of information environment that we're saturated in? Well, well, one point, one point I make in my book is that uh, one reason Kissinger does not come back into government is because of what he did to personalize and to promote his own power. Presidents don't like assistance or their secretaries of state becoming that popular, that dynamic, that important. So in a way, Kissinger made it impossible for him to come back into a type of role like that. I don't think there's a role for the, the, the type of Kissinger figure. Um, I think to a certain extent, uh, there's a role for American diplomacy um, carried out by a variety of diplomats. It doesn't even need to be one, although I think it is crucial that a, a secretary of state have the confidence of the president in carrying out negotiations. It's, it's, it's certainly, if, if he does not if he or she does not have that confidence, um, their their voice is weakened um, uh, with other powers. But I think in a way, Secretary of State Blinken actually has a certain advantage in this because I think he does enjoy the confidence of the president. And he could play a significant role in trying to bring the allies together in some manner. I don't think, I, I think our challenges are different from back then. And I think the media environment, which Kissinger could dominate in a way the American uh, uh, television environment and the press environment of the 70s is not that way these days. It would be very difficult to do that. But I still think it's possible for a, a, an American diplomacy to have uh, effective uh, results uh, if, if properly, if, if guided by, I think, some clear principles, if it, it, it does work in consultation with allies. I just don't think we'll probably see other types of figures like a Kissinger role. That, that I think, is a little difficult to have these days. Uh, you wonder, this is more of an aside, but you wonder if Pompeo thought of being be, being resurrecting the Kissingerian role with North Korea a little bit. You have to wonder, it might have, it might have come across his uh, thinking when he was doing what he was doing with Kim Jong-un. But, but that, that's for us. That's for him to, to, to write in his memoir, perhaps. Um, I mean, you, you know, a lot of things I think, a lot of the other issues we could talk about as far as thinking through um, uh, Biden is it, it can be summed up in in, in the U.S. China relationship, I think. Which you know, I've heard many people say, if you think about the most important 
global issues in the future. Climate change is one, certainly. Uh, but then the other one geopolitically is U.S. is this relationship between the United States and China. And, and there, you know, that's that that has been a dominant theme of the Trump administration. And here we are again. Um, it's a dominant theme of the of the Biden administration. And, and as you as you know, as, as anyone reading your book will see, Kissinger played a, a huge role in setting this relationship into motion, um, at least in the latter half of the 20th century. So what what do you think Kissinger would say or think about where where that relationship is going now and where it should go? Well, Kissinger, <laughs> Kissinger actually makes it easy for me to answer this question because he has talked about it. He's actually quite fearful of the idea that a miscalculation between the United States and China could lead to a sort of pre-World War I situation where each side would miscalculate their interests and possibly act in ways that could lead to conflict. So he's actually shown that concern. And you have to understand that, I mean, Kissinger has been very much identified with China. He visits China constantly. He still has access to the top Chinese leadership. He's seen, of course, as, as overly sympathetic to China by some American conservatives and even by some on the left, I think, as being too tied up there. Um, I, I quote in my book, Bernie Sanders criticizing him for uh, at one point um, uh, encouraging American employers to go to China to, to locate factories and that and hurting the, uh, uh, hurting the American workers. So Kissinger has been involved, you might say, in the attempt to integrate or bring China into the global order. Um, and he, uh, his second last book was called On China, and he continues to write and discuss that issue. I think I think he would probably be encouraging uh, President Biden, um, were he being consulted, uh, to be trying to develop um, a more unified approach to China with the European allies and with um, Japan. Uh, I think he would probably see in what we call the Quad, uh, Japan, Australia, and India, at least a possible uh, uh, a type of development that might be helpful. Um, as long as, I, I think Kissinger probably has more sympathy for some of the Chinese positions than many Americans do now. The, the, the shift in public opinion has been quite pronounced. And so I think Kissinger might be having to scramble to catch up with it in some ways. But he, um, he uh, I think, would still argue uh, that China and the United States need to work out an accommodation, that this is crucial for the world order, that they both need to compromise on, on their uh, respective positions. So I, I do think he has uh, he's certainly been outspoken on that. He's certainly been very gloomy at times during the uh, sort of heightened uh, rhetoric of the Trump administration. But I think he remains uh, concerned that the relationship with China could be a uh, uh, could could go awry in very bad ways. I'm, you know, one thing I've read recently, which which made me think of of, of Kissinger in our conversation coming today, um, and of course, it's one once once we start looking towards the future, uh, historians were a lot worse than, than 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 predicting the past, right? We're really good at predicting the past and not the future. Um, I do I do live by that. Uh, a prominent historian told me that, and I, I use it whenever I can. But but you know, it, nonetheless, there I read the story that was really. Um, it resonated with me and made me think about Kissinger and, and the long arc of U.S.-China relations that the Chinese leadership um, really, for them at least, um, of course, they see this relationship as really important, um, and they re but they want to see it more and more as a relationship among equals um, between the United States and China. And that seems to be something that um, I, I suppose Kissinger would sympathize with, right, since he did help bring this about to some extent. Yes, I think he would. 
Um, I think he would recognize that there are still quite different understandings of what the national interests of the two are. Um, he would be concerned, of course, with the rhetoric about, uh, well, well, he both be concerned both the actions and the rhetoric connected to human rights violations. Um, he did have a much greater optimism about the idea of China being able to adapt to one country, two systems uh, with Hong Kong than has proven to be, at least in more recent times, the case. So I think I, I think to a certain extent he would be he would be wary. He might be a bit more understanding of uh, the issue with the Uyghurs than uh, many are here, because he tended not to think uh, that uh, the internal conditions of countries should be as central to foreign policy, human rights questions, and the rest. Uh, but I, I think he would recognize that the United States and China now need to. Uh, deal with each other, a need to develop mechanisms for resolving conflict, and that that would, in some ways, one of the arguments he made in the 70s was the idea that the United States had to treat the Soviet Union as an equal. In a way that was correct, certainly in the military category, it was not correct economically. China, on the other hand, is an equal economically, and that is something that is very different in this particular um, uh, clash between the United States and the rival power. China is very different in that sense, and I think he would probably argue we need to have different uh, ways of, of dealing with it than we did during the Soviet Union's era. Yes. And of course, the, the million dollar question would be if Kissinger were in power today, what would what certainly I think he would think these things you're you were, you were mentioning, but what would he do? Um, I, I would be sort of dying to know or what he would be advising Blinken to do. Um, like you said, what would be the equivalent of shooting a, you know, a gun at a saloon while walking backwards, um, which is probably one of the trickiest things to do and leads to all kinds of misinterpretations. But nonetheless, um, Tom, I, I, I want to thank you for joining us and talking to us about Kissinger then and now and trying to sort through, you know, I think one of the most complex, fascinating and consequential um, statesmen that, that, that the United States has ever seen. I don't think it's an overstatement to say that. So um, thank you so much for, for joining us. Well, thank you so much for having me on this podcast. Anytime when you when you, the next book uh, about Blinken, please let us know. <laughs> okay, will do. So then and now, uh, which you've just heard is a production of the UCLA Luskin Center for History and Policy with support from the UCLA History Department. It can be found wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thank you to our director, David Myers, and our guest today, Professor Thomas Schwartz, for joining us. See you next time. Thank you for joining us this week on Then and Now. Then and Now is brought to you by the UCLA Luskin Center for History and Policy, where we study change to make change. For more on our work, follow us on Twitter and Facebook at our handle, at Luskin History. Our show is produced by Maya Ferdman and David Myers, with original music by Daniel Reichman. Special thanks to the UCLA History Department for its support, and thanks to you for listening. <laughs>